It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. On the first half of our show today, an exhibition on Nelson Mandela, and in the second half, a return guest, voice coach extraordinaire David Smuckler, joins us to talk about dying languages. So please stick around. But right now, when you think of Nelson Mandela, what comes to mind? Do you think of the man or the issues surrounding his life? Maybe you think of the 27 years he spent in prison as a human rights defender. Or maybe you think of the corrupt and white supremacist society that put him there. Then again, perhaps you think of how Mandela rose from the ashes to become South Africa's first black president and his efforts to rebuild a broken nation. Whatever you might think, you now have the chance to explore those thoughts and more at a new sensory-rich exhibit that will take you into this man's life and the struggles he faced in South Africa. It's called Mandela, the Struggle for Freedom. Here to to tell us about that exhibition is Karen Carter, the exhibit's curator. Karen, welcome to Moment of Truth. Thank you. Um, Can I correct you right off? (laughs) Sure. You know, just one of those annoying guests that starts with corrections. What did I do now? No, because I don't want the human rights people to yell at me. So they curated the exhibition in partnership with the um, Apartheid Museum South Africa. I'm just a consulting curator, so I'm helping to make sure that the exhibition comes to Toronto Ah. and is shown properly in a new space because it's touring, as you know, from Winnipeg. I get the credit for being the first stop on hopefully what will become a very long international tour. Uh, And there will be people like me who are local curators who help to make sure the tour uh, fits into a different space, engages with the community, and that the public experience is uh, rich and interesting for everyone who gets to see the show. What do you know about the background of this? Um. I believe it was, uh, and I'm not sure the gentleman's there anymore, and I can't recall his name, but it was uh, the brainchild of someone in Canada. It was a curator from the Human Rights Museum who reached out to the folks in South Africa and said, I'd, I'd love to do this. I think many Canadians may kind of adjacently remember the Human Rights Museum as an idea because there was a ton of consultation that went into getting it up. And I think there was also some sense that it was an Izzy Asper legacy initiative that this man who is of Jewish ancestry and it comes to this country, it's kind of like, you know, a kid that did well and wanted to give back to the community and was thinking broadly, not just about Canadian society, but about human rights in its broadest way. And I think this is probably the first big thing that they've done that will likely really hit that mandate because they talk about, for those of us who've been there, a lot of things related to human rights. They talk about indigenous communities, uh, the Holocaust. They talk about things related to African diaspora. They cover a lot of different elements around human rights issues in the museum. But this type of uh, uh, curated experience about an iconic figure like Nelson Mandela, I think speaks to what I hope is a step into what their future will look like because, I mean, off the top of my head, when I think of Mandela, I think of uh, Gandhi, I think of Mother Teresa, just people who were very selfless in their entire being and who moved through the world um, thinking globally and thinking about how self was more important or people that their self was really there to help the broader community good. Um uh, so, yeah, I'm excited for this exhibit and excited for a Canadian institution like this and taking a lead role in partnering with uh, another international museum to bring this story to the public. 
You know, when you say that, when you you mention Mandela with other people like like Gandhi and 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 those kind of figures, I I it automatically makes me think about what part of that life that he he brought forward do we get to see in in this ex- exhibition? You know, well, and, and also the forces that were against him. Yeah, the the. The narrative construct for this exhibition is a it's an overwhelming um, one and it it's a testament to the skills of the curation, how they took this, as you've kind of alluded to, this huge story of this mammoth state um, that was able in its. Uh, physical smallness, because we know the might, might, the white minority in South Africa is and was a minority, was a small group of people, but they were able to uh, corral a powerful uh, means through economic um, uh, resources that really had the foot on the neck of uh, black and what they deemed colored or other basically South Africans who were not deemed as um, European enough. Um, the the there's a chair in this exhibition that is it's a green chair it just looks like any bench you'd probably see in any city or any community anywhere but it has in white letters Europeans only and I think for those of us who live in North America and think of the otherness of African American history you'd see whites only but they said Europeans only which kind of constructs what this was for them uh, and so the weight of that when you're experiencing it in an exhibition like this, I think the curators use color and tone. There's the typical, you know, you got to stand and read the panels to get the story. But you could almost walk through this exhibition, not be a person who wants to stand and read everything, I'll admit, uh, which, you know, there are colleagues who don't like when I admit that as a museological person. But there's a lot of times I just want to walk through. I want to look at the pictures. I want to look at the stuff. And I don't actually want to read what you wrote. This is the type of exhibition that you could actually do that and still leave with a rich experience because the the moments that come from the visual juiciness of it are so impactful um, and color and tone, uh, uh, visual mediums are used so strongly that you really do feel that you walk into the construction of apartheid. You're reminded of the Canadian influence on that. They visited us. They looked at our indigenous community separation, and that gave them a template for what they did. That is a stain on us, and it's still a stain that I think we have to live with today. But then by the end of it, you also see how their Truth and Reconciliation Commission is something we borrowed back from them. So it's like this, the narrative thread is not only... um, you feel a sense of Mandela's life and you feel a depth of it that you wouldn't otherwise feel. And someone like him, I think people feel like they know him and very much so I think Torontonians, Canadians will feel like they know him because as we know, this is the first city he came to after he came out of jail. Speaks to the activism and the relationship building and also probably just the impact of the South African expat community here. But you don't know him unless you've seen this exhibition. If you see this exhibition, you realize how much you didn't know and how much you also didn't know about Winnie uh, and how much you didn't know about the power of the state and how it constructs what the state had to fight these average people. So there are moments in there with walking into the prison installation, seeing the um, tanks that the state used, and then seeing juxtaposed against it 
literally garbage can covers, which is what the youth would have been using in the Sharpsville massacre to defend themselves against this mammoth sense of power that was coming against them. I think if you are a human being, whether you count yourself as a human rights activist or community activist or what's the latest hipster word for urbanist or whatever it is they're saying today that means you're smart and interested in community building, whether you dub yourself as one of those tags, just as a citizen of the world, uh, everyone should see this exhibition. It just reminds you of how important leadership is. And in a time that we're living today where a lot of our leaders are far from exuding leadership qualities, they're in leadership roles, but they're not necessarily being leaders. Uh, it just, I hope this inspires in 10 years a generation of young people who end up stepping into leadership because of seeing this exhibition. Well, it sounds very timely in many ways in regard to what you were just saying. Yeah. The other thing it makes me think about uh, from your description is how much time does someone need to walk through this, you know, and not just, you know, look at the pictures <laughs> and, and go through it, but, you know, comfortably go through it. Um, I think it's a repeat visitor mm. exhibit for that reason, because there is a lot there. Sure. Um, but I do think you should give yourself that typical one hour to an hour and a half. Like I think most museum visits, even if your big bang show is a 30 minute, 45 minute thing, and you can get through this in the 35 to, uh, 45 minute, uh, probably well, uh, it's 5,000 square feet. Um, it's relaunching the former Mocha museum site up in North York, um, as a part of the TO live, um, uh, uh, work that they've done to bring those city um, performing arts spaces um, kind of back to life and re-populating um, them and re-engaging them with the community in more effective ways. So it's not a large space, but to really take time, you could give yourself a couple of hours because you could easily be on each floor, even if you're not the typical reader, just because it just to look to look at each image, to take your time reading the signs on the wall of laws, which kind of literally gives you this huge backdrop of the 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 signposts that people would have walked through society seeing about where they could not go and what they could not be and how the the tag separated literally black, white, colored, uh, or black European colored. Just even the notion of colored that they saw this gray space in between it's completely messed up uh, when you think about it. Uh, so yeah, I would say, you know, make it a, a couple of hours. So you can take your time and take it in, but also prepare to want to go back uh, and want to take people. Um, we've been talking with our marketing team, just kind of getting ideas, uh, and people have been throwing things at the wall about um, how this exhibit could also help people deal with some of their own mm-hmm. issues that they're working mm-hmm. out. Um, uh, and what that might mean for reconciliation on a small scale, on the micro as well as the macro level. Um, so, yeah, I think you could do a couple of hours. But for me, even in seeing it in Winnipeg and going with the curatorial line, thinking about it coming here, I'm looking forward to seeing it again um, because it is uh, the type of thing where you want to go over and over. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. My guest today is Karen Carter, consulting curator for a new exhibition, on Nelson Mandela. Now, you, you touched on something else I was just going to ask you about as well, and that it ties in with, with other exhibits or, or, or sometimes presentations on an indigenous uh, issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they can trigger people. Is this the kind of, a, of exhibition that might trigger people? 
Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it will trigger South African expats. There are memories that will come back there uh, of loss and of uh, their own reasons maybe for leaving. Um, uh, I think there are memories that will come back or or triggers that will be there for uh, people of African descent, for you know, uh, people all over the continent, West Africans, uh, people in the diaspora from the Caribbean or from Europe or North America. Uh, I think one of the reasons that um, Mandela and a figure like him resonates so much with folks internationally is he's talking about things that require you to examine the worst of yourself against the best of yourself and to, to... to have his narrative end with forgiveness and reconciliation that he was more focused on bringing the country together than he was about revenge is a really um, important part of that um, trigger because I think we're used to the trigger of the trauma and then how you get past the trauma for your own self-healing, but we're not necessarily at the point yet in our public narrative where we're talking about what does healing look like and how important forgiveness is as a part of healing. Uh, And I think even as we see conversations right now around the missing Indigenous uh, Aboriginal women across the country um, and other things like that that are happening globally, um, uh, you know, conversations around Rwanda and conversations that continue around what's happening uh, in the regions uh, in Israel and Palestine. Like, it's just what's what we're seeing with what's happening in uh, thinking of the journalists that passed away recently in Somalia. All of those things will, I think, this this experience will trigger those things for different people in different places, and it speaks to our global humanity. But I hope by the end of it, the reconciliation part also triggers, okay, am I doing enough to heal? And I'm not just for me personally, but to think broadly about trying to heal, trying to be a part of the healing process for community, um, uh, for countries, for communities, for just globally. Mm. Um, Yeah, because we're used to talking about the trauma, and I think that's important, but sometimes people sit in that trauma and they don't get to a place of healing. And I think Mandela got to a place of healing. And uh, that's, for me, one of the key lessons that come out of this. You touched on a number of things that that bring it back to a a Canadian uh, sort of perspective in Mm -hmm. terms of the missing and murdered women and how uh, I think, I I hope a majority of people know about uh, that Apartheid was based on that they did come here and look at the residential school system yep. in Canada to see that connection and, and realize that it was partly based and set up on that. Yeah. But you also mentioned that we're going to learn more about not just Nelson, but Winnie and, and, and the society of, of South Africa as well. So I will admit that my initial um, experience with the exhibit was a bit disappointing with Winnie Mandela. Mm because I didn't feel that they gave enough space to her. Mm. Uh, but I'll admit my bias as a black woman, I was always Team Winnie. And so, <laughs> that, that you know, we all walk through this world <laughs> and with our biases and we got to admit them. Um, uh, and he did say, like, if not for her advocacy, he would have stayed in jail. Mm. And he also admitted she had it more difficult than he did because, you know, 
God only knows what they did to her on those long times mm-hmm. where she was in prison and in solitary confinement. Um, uh, that m- was likely not made public for you know a bunch of horrible reasons that mm-hmm. my brain goes to and I have to shut down every time it starts to go there. Uh, but I think what we tried to do is we positioned Winnie in a way that gives her, uh, I think, uh, visual prominence. And I think we also try to make sure that we're thinking about programming and in in talking about black women leadership and uh, what that advocacy looked like and also just female leadership at that political level. Um, uh, because we know that after watching what happened, say, with Hillary Clinton in the States, like it's almost as though the the benchmark for the boys is way lower than for the girls. And uh, we want to be a part of the conversation that pulls from the threads around uh, Winnie Mandela's leadership and advocacy and strength uh, to be able to hold her family together uh, as a woman and a mother but also as a uh, political freedom fighter uh, advocate um, for her husband's release and uh, to also, even in being graceful and stepping back when she needed to, because um, all accounts, I mean, from the way she's presented in films to uh, some of the reading I've done shows that she was very, like she was angry uh, and had every right to be. Uh, but she did step back at a time where I think if she didn't, she probably, frankly, I think could have challenged Mandela's vision for reconciliation and frankly his power. Um, so I think her her prominence in this exhibition, just because anyone who knows curatorial choices people make impact the way you view something. So we've physically positioned uh, wall decals of her that mm-hmm. Frankly, we're not as prominent in the uh, placing in Winnipeg. Um, and some of that is just like the size of the room that they had. There was a prison visual experience that the walls are essentially screens that are showing you what it's like for Mandela to be in prison. And it, they talk about the letters that they were exchanging and that they went from being blacked out to being literally cut out. So you could see how the demise of them as a couple and the impact of him uh, on him as a man and as, as a man who was, um, you know, reared to look after his family and suddenly wasn't able to do that because he was imprisoned Uh, and the impact that would have had on them, uh, that relationship as well as both their humanities and their images of her with the kids. So you kind of see her, as the loving mom and a young woman who's optimistic, uh, newly married. It's like all the things you can imagine for any young woman in any society when you're starting out a life with your partner. Um, But then there's a a wall decal of her with uh, uh, a chain link fence where you can see the starkness of what would have become their homes in the townships and uh, you could see she's in survival freedom fighter mode. Mm. Um, so that the positioning of those moments, I think, are are really important here, and they open the door for bigger and broader conversations around um, African women in le- leadership. Because she, uh, for me, is uh, is a strong benchmark in 
when to step forward and, you know, fist in the air power to the people, but also when it made sense to step back and to think about that greater good. Mm. Uh, I think she was graceful in 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 doing that when necessary. I'm not so sure, honestly, I would have been as graceful. Okay, that sounds like a great spot for us to take a break. Uh, so don't go away. We will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with uh, Karen Carter and talking more about Mandela, the Struggle for Freedom exhibition. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We are speaking with Karen Carter. She is the curatorial consultant for TO Live in regard to an exhibition called Mandela, the Struggle for Freedom. And that is a an exhibition has been created by the Canadian Museum of Human Rights in collaboration with the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it is going to have its first showing in Toronto, outside of Winnipeg, which is where it is now, and will be soon uh, in Toronto, October the 10th, I believe. It's going to be there until January of next year. Yeah, so January 7th. In a perfect world, it would have ran till the summer, but, you know, your girl doesn't always get what she wants. <laughs> So we, we've been talking a lot about the exhibit and a lot about uh, uh, Mandela himself and his life, which is what this is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the exhibit coming to, to Toronto, moving to this space uh, here, um, I was thinking about a couple of things. I know there's going to be some, some performances that are involved with the, this uh, while it's here mm-hmm. in the city. But also I was thinking as you were talking earlier that is there music with the exhibit now? Is there music that accompanies this exhibit? There isn't. There is a lot of uh, sound. So uh, I think a lot of us are used to modern museums where it's your your presence triggers a sound mm. feed. So it's very focused on if you're standing in front of this, you would get an audio feed that says blah, blah, blah and explains uh, to you. That also feeds into my earlier comment about being able to just kind of walk through mm. because that audio feed in the video yeah. makes it less important for you if you... I guess I don't want... When you say museum exhibits, a lot of times people sometimes feel overwhelmed uh, and intimidated and I don't want anyone to feel that because this is very accessible sure. and the video and audio feed makes it that much more. And I think that is partly because... Uh, TO Live as a cultural entity in the city of Toronto is very focused on what type of performing arts experience and now museological experience do we want the GTA to enjoy? What type of things are not happening in Toronto? Are we, I feel like this city is finally coming into its own and starting to program for its demographic. It felt like it's it was stuck in a while where it was programming for a demographic demographic of time past, mm. and you wouldn't be able to see you know South Asian or African or African American or Caribbean performances on major stages. And To Live is doing that. So uh, many of you who are royal lovers came uh, woke up early to watch uh, Meghan and Harry get married and remember the Kingdom Choir. Um, so they're coming as a part of the performance package that is uh, programmed uh, around this time. So it's it's actually, uh, for those of us who know Harborfront Center, you know you go to Harborfront, you're out there with the outdoor uh, live experiences that are animating the space in the summer, and you walk over in the power plants there and you get the large-scale professional contemporary art experience. I believe 
uh, and they haven't told me to say this, so they might yell at me later, but this is what I believe, uh, that TO Live is positioning itself to be that performing arts center with the history museum, populist museum experience that is very accessible to the public that is the GTA. And even the location, because this is part of the relaunch of the Meridian Arts Center uh, that will happen in the fall um, up at uh, North York, uh, formerly the uh, North York Center, and a lot of us know it as old school folks like me still call it Mel Lassman Square. Um, but the the location for me also speaks to New Toronto because I feel like that's kind of midtown now. You can get up there if you're downtown. Mm. It's a, actually easier to take the subway up than to drive. Uh, and, you know, you walk out two twos and you're right there. But if you're coming in from North Toronto or, uh, as I like to say to my siblings, from the hinterlands in the 905 West or East or North, it's it's still accessible. And demographic-wise, a lot of black and brown people who I think are very much feel an affinity to and a, they claim Mandela as their own uh, because he looked like them in the 21st century as far as leadership. Like there's this sense that... We know South Africans call him Madiba, and those of us sentimentally sometimes use that word because we know we're not South African, but we feel that sense of connection to him. So we expect the floodgates to come in from the 905, and this location, I believe, really makes it accessible for them. And hopefully is a first step, I mean, uh, into what this um, museum space, this exhibition space will become for the GTA. So we're going to wrap things up. Uh, just before we go, though, I'd like to know, have you heard any comments from people that have seen this exhibit? The Because like online you'll read from uh, visitors in, mm. in Winnipeg, and some of that information was uh, researched by me just to get a sense. And mm. a lot of it is people, I think the, the commentary that you'll hear from Winnipeg will be different than what you will hear from Toronto. And part of it is, like it or not, it's Winnipeg. And so the the demographic of Winnipeg, um, uh, the, the sensibility around that experience, I think the... I would have loved to have seen more of the Indigenous community of Winnipeg's commentary than mm. uh, the, you know, the white Canadian uh, commentary because it was almost what's expected, which was it was a great exhibit. I learned a lot. But you didn't have the level of testimonial mm. that I think you'll get. Mm. There is a connection to Mandela in this city. Mm. And so I'm excited about that personal testimonial mm. element. People remember him coming here. I have a friend who, uh, Maxine Bailey, who's a, a well-known executive who recently left TIFF. She, years ago when I met her, had this photo and I swear she looked like she saw Jesus because the, the look on her face was like she was in complete awe. And I remember saying to her, who are you looking at? Like, what is this photo? You look like you're like glowing because you're like literally standing in front of the burning bush beside Moses. And she was like, Mandela, Karen, I was looking at Nelson Mandela. Like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. How close do we get to Jesus, Nelson Mandela in this world? So there you go. I think those stories of photos with him, volunteering, parents who went to Sky Dome with their kids, like just that sensibility is going to make this a really, really rich experience for the city and I, I think a gift to the city. Right. 
Great. Thank you for sharing all of those comments. And I, I think that uh, you've triggered some interest in this event that will be coming to Toronto. Uh, and once again, that's October 10th to January 7th of 2020 when it will be here at the Meridian Arts Centre, formerly Toronto Centre for the Arts. And that's at 5040 Young Street North in North York. And where can people uh, find tickets and, and can they get advanced tickets? Uh, com. Uh, you can get tickets online, uh, and they're online now. Uh, so please go, go forth, and uh, book, and I'll see you there. Look forward to the curatorial walkthroughs. Okay, that's great. Thanks so much for coming in today. It's been thank great you for you giving me the time. All right, don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with our next guest, David Smuckler. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and I'd like to know. When you watch a movie, a stage play, or any performance or presentation, do you focus on the sounds being created by that person? Sort of, yeah. But probably not. You're just listening to the words that person is creating, the thoughts that he's sharing with you. Unless, of course, they make a mistake or they muffle a word and, and you don't quite catch the sound. Then you, you change into what you're listening. Well, my guest today... Mr. David Smuckler is a voice coach, and he actually helps actors and presenters and people of any kind work on getting that presentation to the best it could possibly be to get that message across to the audience of their choice. Now, this is the International Year of Indigenous Languages, and some of those Indigenous languages are in danger of disappearing. And so we're going to explore that idea today a little bit with David about what happens when languages become in danger of disappearing or disappear. Uh, how does that affect things? How does that affect the culture, the nation, perhaps? Uh, we're going to explore a little bit of that with him today. It's a pleasure to have David back because he is a returning guest. We had him on the show once before. And, you know, as, as a matter of course, we here at Element FM, uh, we dedicate nine hours a week to Indigenous languages, and you can find out more about when those languages might be airing by going to our website. But a little bit about Mr. Smuckler. He's conducted classes at Canada's National Theatre School, the Native Theatre School, and the Centre for Indigenous Theatre at Simon Fraser University, the University of Calgary, and other training institutions across Canada. He's uh, also, his experience as a voice coach spans Canada, England, the Netherlands, and the United States. And he has worked with the entire range of theatre, from classical theatre, opera, music theatre, film, television, radio, contemporary and experimental theatre and music. He's in demand as a coach in North America. And he's worked at Stratford, the National Arts Centre, and a number of other places it goes on. He's Let's just say he's very experienced in the area that we're going to be speaking to him today. And he's actually going to be going back to the Centre for Indigenous Theatre in the fall. So it's timely as well. Uh, to have him here, we greatly appreciate his time in, in being here on the show. And I welcome you, Mr. Smuckler. Thanks to, for coming in and joining us again. Thank you. It's, it's a delight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, as I mentioned, it, it is the year of Indigenous languages. Right. And uh, you have had, uh, you've worked for the Center of Indigenous Theatre as well as a national uh, in, in native uh, theatre school. Uh, so you have some, uh, some experience uh, over time in, in working with indigenous people and languages. And, you know, we're talking to some degree about that, the languages disappearing and what happens 
you have your own personal story in regard to your own background in 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 terms of uh, your European background and and your history there with languages. Just in terms of, you know, I think it was your grandmother or, or great grandmother, as you, we were talking before we came on the air about um, just Romanian and the difference in in Romanian languages that they couldn't communicate. Okay, so I had my maternal grandmother was Romanian yes. from from the north of Romania, and my paternal step-grandmother was basically an illiterate peasant from this, from Bucharest, and the two women could not speak Romanian together. Mm. It was two different language worlds, <laughs> and um, they spoke English. <laughs> okay. <And> the maternal <laughs> grandmother spoke fluent English. The paternal lady, it was, it was mixed, but that was, the English had to be the lingua franca mm. bet- between them. And it's interesting because I go to a, a movement class, a training class, and the woman who runs the class is Romanian. And there's something in there in that voice which is an extra element for me mm. of going because I go, oh, this is there's a safety in hearing that. Now, the same thing because I heard Russian as a child um, I don't have the same thing with Russian, mm. <laughs> but the Romanian, mm. because it was maternal. Um, but we all have, the, the, the premise here is that language is a key to our world, so that whether it's the link to um, a history, and history, uh, his or her story. Mm. Uh, so that language tie is really important. Then it's how do I tell my story? How do I speak my experiences if I am not comfortable in the language I speak? Mm. So we we deal in Canada with multiple problems because we have immigration to this country and people trying to figure out English and various degrees of success, and that creates emotional steps that have to be worked through. We then, on the other side of the coin, is having the, the, the peoples of this land had their languages ripped away mm. and been given an English which they don't have clues to. Mm. How do you talk about that tree in English if the understanding of that tree was in your language of birth? Mm. How do you just talk about your feelings if it's been translated into a language which has been forced on you? instead of the language where you have connections. So, I don't have Romanian. I don't have Yiddish. I don't have the Russian. Uh, I don't have the Lithuanian. All languages spoken in my family. But I have the emotional connections. I've had made sure that I have the emotional connections to them. And my work has given me the emotional connections. So in working 
in the modern indigenous world is if the language of the culture has been taken away and we're left with this monolith of English, how do we look at English and go, where do I find clues to who I am, what my emotional and cultural structure is? And that's what we've got to search. That's one of our big challenges right now, is how to find the clues. And it's going to vary from person to person. It's going to vary from community to community. And it's going to vary from indigenous language to indigenous language. Mm. There's no one set pattern. I've tried numerous times to learn Spanish. I don't have a sympathy to Spanish. <laughs> I just, I have Spanish friends who just laugh at me. Mm. <laughs> I just, something does not twig. I can twig a little bit with Portuguese, but Italian I twig with. Mm. It's, and I think I knew this way back in high school when we said, which language do you want to learn? And I said, not Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, don't feel a connection there. And I think had I been offered Russian or German, I would have jumped. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have been offered Italian, I would have jumped. But we were literally offered French and Spanish or Latin. So it, you're going to be working with uh, the Center for Indigenous Theater here mm -hmm. in the fall. Um, what kind of things will you be working with them on? I, mean, I guess I guess that's a personal also. Uh, uh, well, it, or is it a, is it a class or no? Is it's it going to be. I'm working with the fourth year students. Okay. So I, I have worked. We we've worked before. So it's going to be really looking at what they need. So they have some knowledge now. They've had three years of of training, mm. and um, so that it's going to be. What they need, yes. What they need as a group, and what they need individually, and whether we're working in English or we're working in their their language uh, of origin, that's going to be up for us to dis sure. discuss that and sort that out, or it's whether they need to start working on skills of how do they learn one of their colleagues' languages. Mm. So what are the clues that they need to work on to develop their language skills? You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. My guest today is David Smuckler. I just thought of something for you as, as, a, as a voice coach. Um, when you can't speak the language you're trying to uh, help someone with in that case, what are the clues you're looking for? <laughs> I've just put my hands over my face and covered my eyes. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, this was a commercial for orange juice, and it was to be done in Cantonese. Mm. So I sat with the translator, and I learned to... I learned the thing, and I'm coaching two children, mm. two Caucasian kids who have to suddenly watch the commercial and do it, and then they speak to each other instantly in Cantonese, and that's the joke of the, the commercial. 
And we, I memorized it. I've worked on it, got all the little nuances going. We get in to on set. I'm working it through very, very carefully. Halfway through the day, one of the producers walks in and goes, that third sentence is wrong. It should be, I go, oh no. And then we take a lunch break. I call the translator. They give me the change. I tell them what was changed. And they go, well, it's the first time we're hearing about it. So they gave me the change. We go back in. I get the children to do the new version. And the crew looks at me and goes, where did you study? <laughs> Cantonese. <laughs> I just go. I said, I, 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 I'm sweating. <laughs> it, was, it was agony to make sure I was exact mm. because it is such a different auditory, mm. intellectual structure. Mm. And that's the issue, is that when we, each language sees the world, feels the world, thinks the world differently. So I look on the box of cereal this morning, and I'm looking, I look at the French, and I go, really? And I'm going, well, this is the logic in English, but that's really weird in French. Mm. And that's, yeah. That's the truth. It's so totally different. So sometimes I'll look at the package and I'll read it in French first. Go, turn my brain around. Then I'll read it in English. Mm. And the important thing about revitalizing the indigenous languages is because it's revitalizing how we read the world. Part of the effort of the Canadian government was to monologize everybody mm. so that we all were controllable. Mm. Well, we're not. And the more, and this is a big, I mean, Mr. Trump and all these verbal games in the, in the States is about playing on our brains. Mm. So how do we, as in, indigenous people, and not excluding me, I'm just speaking yep. in the general, how do we get to feel, get back to the feelings which give us sources which will enrich not only the language, family of origin, language of origin, but then English? Mm. Mm. because if English doesn't have richness to it and it won't have richness because there is no way all of us are going to English it the same way. Mm. And the more we have our own personal, familial, and then cultural roots alive in us, the more any language we speak is going to be richer. Now, something you mentioned that richness just before we went to air as well, and and I was thinking that 
with fewer speakers, and, and I think that is what you were alluding to as well, there might be some speakers that are trying to revitalize the language and re rebuild it, which is wonderful, but the fact that there is a, a limited amount of speakers reduces that richness of the language itself. I think that's what you were saying. Yes, and that's what we're fighting against, is we're fighting against the destruction of... We're, we're dealing with narrowing down the language structuring. That starts to, start to limit how we hear. One of the exciting discoveries for me in the last 15 years is part of the, the doing voice teacher training at York University in the graduate program. I would lead them in an examination of, uh, of anatomy and, and physiology of the human voice. And one time discovered the book we were using was old-fashioned, so I went to speech pathology pathology friends, and they recommended a new book. The new book had research on the ear, which I had never seen before. And it talked about how the wiring from the outer, we have an outer, a middle ear, and an inner ear. And the wiring is different from outer ear to one part of the brain, middle ear to a second part of the brain, inner ear to a different part of the brain. I had just sat with that, and a fellow walks in for a coaching session who is Russian. And he's had earaches ever since he came from Russia, which he's now been in Canada about six, eight years. And he's constantly having earaches. And we experimented with going outer ear, listening, making sound, speaking with awareness of outer ear and listening middle ear and inner ear, and all of a sudden he said, my earaches are gone. And he realized that he heard Russian with one ear, and he was trying to take his Russian hearing and applying it to English. Wow. Hmm. So that's led me to experiment on especially with the indigenous languages, they're also different. Mm. And whether they work primarily on outer ear or middle ear or inner, and we're wired differently. We handle the tongue differently in the languages. <clears throat> we handle the throat. Some of the languages are very... Um, the more further north we go, the more throat we're doing. You're not going to open your mouth <clears throat> and get right. the snow in. <laughs> <laughs> so the language to sit further inside. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, I remember one time sitting in Camp Vancouver at the coffee shop with uh, one of the fellows from the West Coast. I can't, don't remember which people he was, but he had been at a um, um, uh, Sarah, Sarah ceremonies in Manitoba, and he said, the singing was so different, I couldn't do it. I could never get it right. And we just sat there working on how literally the singing, the languages were so different, the, the acoustics of the space. Mm, right. The acoustics of how we hear each other. So 
when I listen to the politicians, and it doesn't matter what culture, what country, I listen to how they play their voices, how they actually, they're determining what kind of truth you should get from me. (laughs) Right. All right. So part of becoming comfortable in your language of origin is becoming comfortable with how it lives in your body because it contacts certain emotional things. You are listening to Element FM, and our guest today is Mr. David Smuckler. He is a uh, voice instructor, a voice coach, and he has uh, got many years of experience and a a plethora of, of experience working with many people, including he is going to be working with the Center for Indigenous Theatre in the fall. And that's what we're talking about partly today, is that this is the, uh, the International Year of Indigenous Languages. And we've been talking to some degree about the, the fact that Indigenous languages, in some cases, have either disappeared or there is, they're in danger of disappearing because... Uh, in part of uh, the residential school system in Canada that uh, placed Indigenous people in the residential school system with the explicit uh, uh, desire to eliminate their inherent right to their Indigenous languages. So even though uh, some communities and some uh, some places have tried to initiate uh, reinserting their languages and they are teaching people uh, languages, which is fabulous, of course. We the more we get, uh, the the better. But uh, there is that uh, if there is a, a language that disappears, what what happens? What what is the the, the 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 downside of losing a language that is not around anymore? And and one of the things that David alluded to prior to the break was that even though the language might be saved. And he's speaking from his experience of, of, of seeing the richness, the richness of languages. And he's saying the more speakers, the richer that language can become. If there's fewer speakers in a language, the, it's not as rich as it could be. And he also talks about the, the connection we have at the cellular level of, of experiencing languages. And uh, it's been wonderful having you here today, uh, David, to, to speak to us on that and share your thoughts on these areas. As you were talking, I went to a recent sunset of standing uh, on a hill, small hill, look, observing the sunset. And there I am, a so, was a solo person, with my dog, just standing there observing the sunset. And I wondered if my daughter were here with me that at point, how she would describe the sunset, or my son-in-law. And if my wife were still alive, how she would describe it. And then how would the dogs describe it? That's the richness of a language. If we take any one of those versions and say it's inauthentic, it's inappropriate, we are cutting down the experience. And that's what cutting language does. Mm. The richness of observing a sunset is deeply affected 
by the every time we lose a language. Our job is to help the in each individual find their version of their dominant language and then to find I really feel we need to be in contact with our languages of origin, especially in the North American melting pot. We lose richness. And the more we lose the range of indigenous experiences, the more boring that sunset gets. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Now, you had also mentioned that with with what you do, now you, you are a, a voice coach, and before uh, just before we came back, we were talking about the differences or similarities that you and, say, someone that is a, a singing voice coach would, would uh, help someone with, and that there is some overlap there in what you do and, and what a voice teacher would do for voice, for singing. Yeah, except in singing... You have, um, especially the more classical the singing is, the more you, the quality of the tone is important. Mm. When you're in direct human communication or in actor communication, we may still want to have four octaves of vocal emotional interaction, but part of our clues of understanding is the uniqueness of the tone, the uniqueness of the experience between the two people. Where as soon as you move into singing, it's got to be solidly in that B flat. <laughs> or that, it's got to be straight there in the A. <laughs> you, you move it and you're going, why did you move it? What are you trying to say by moving it? Whereas in the spoken voice, we want to feel that richness of, of the experience. Um, earlier in the, in the summer, and I was taking the, the, the streetcar and the subway a lot, I would just stand there and listen to languages. Mm. I would just st- stand there and listen to the storytelling, the discussions that would go by. And I didn't care what language it was. What I was interested in was how rich the experience was or whether they had narrowed it down and they were being mini-toned, mm. or whether they were speaking with, and I just have a clear memory of a husband telling a story to the wife, and it was clear that it was a relationship, and we did. there were enough stops that I was observing mm. this conversation. And as he told the story, I was able to observe her body processing. I have no idea what the language was. But just observing that interaction, and sometimes he wasn't even caring what her her response was, and other times it was so important what her response is. That's the richness of hearing, feeling, experiencing language. That's what we need. That's what we need in the indigenous languages. That's what we need to restore. Mm. You know, it's interesting uh, the way you, you just described that story. And, and you'd mentioned something else that, that I thought was fascinating as well. And that, that is the delivery. And it's basically kind of that story you were talking about, that richness, the delivery 
but even if and you mentioned this the, about your wife who would have to might do uh, uh, something in English but have have to reinterpret it in another English yeah and but still keep the same intent but it's a different interpretation and that's that's fascinating in itself to go into that amount of detail and nuance I guess um, is what exactly you do with people yeah yeah so the, so that um, I actually was able to see my wife play it was Carabino in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro in a British English translation mm. in Italian in original Italian and in an American English translation and the American translation had none of the subtlety of the British translation I could see her mind and her body bringing that subtlety to but the flatness mm. of the American translation made me go, ooh, that's... Re-, which I happen to have known well, the, English transla- the American English translation. And I went, whoa! <laughs> Fascinating. Ah, yeah. Fascinating stuff, David. It's, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. We, we greatly appreciate your time, and it's wonderful to have you here again. Thank you. I've enjoyed... <laughs> these interviews very, very much. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I certainly hope that you'll uh, you'll be able to come back another time. It's yes. a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. Our guest today, Mr. David Smuckler. And uh, David, what if uh, we've triggered someone's interest out there that goes, hey, I would like to maybe study with Mr. Smuckler. How do they get a hold of you? I'm in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> And there's no C in Smuckler. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll also uh, look you up and and share that with people later on. So, again, thanks thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm David Moses. See you later. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zaboken, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. <laughs>